You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today my guest is Victoria Gomelski. She is a longtime jewelry and watch writer. Uh, she basically runs the JCK publication, which is a which is a jewelry trade industry publication. She does a lot of writing for major um, newspapers and publications around the world, and I've known her for a long time. Victoria, welcome. Thanks so much, Ariel. How you doing? I'm I'm well. Um, I think everyone out in the world should know that we actually live very close to one another. We're part of the uh, relatively small Los Angeles contingent of people um, that cover watches. And it's it's kind of interesting because when we have gone to events over the years, it's always been like the people in New York, assuming it's a U.S. event, and then everyone else, which includes us. Yeah. And, and we're even the smaller contingent lives in the valley. The the mythical, you know, long derided valley, which I personally love because I grew up here and so did you. Okay, but okay, let's let's talk about that for a moment because Los Angeles is a very important market um, for the luxury industry. I think geographically speaking, it's the largest in the United States, um, just given the sheer size and, and you know amount of transactions which happen. I don't think it's hard to believe that Southern California is the most important, and yet the watch industry treats. It like it's you know that that city Mos Eisley in Star Wars on, on Tatooine like it's on this other side of the universe like once in a while a trip will be made out to the desert. Um, it's sort of this interesting paradox because this is such a epicenter of transactions, yet you know given the sort of way that the, the luxury industry is so focused on Europe, you know, too far outside of the Geneva time zone, it's like they don't have the bandwidth to like uh, have emissaries out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. And I do think that is that comes from the Swiss point of view, or that's a Swiss, a Swiss thing. I, I remember like four or five years ago, Vacheron Constantine had this event at a producer's home somewhere in the Pacific Palisades, and they had like it was catered by the chef from Jelena, you know, the famous. We were both there. We, I remember that event. We were oh, both that's there. That's right. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Listen to me, that was like, oh my God, they finally recognized there's, you know, there are clients here in LA that they should be buttering up with their amazing, you know, dinners. And they had that cool mixologist there, like carving ice, Japanese style. And honestly, that was like maybe one of the only handful of events I that really stick out in memory as a as a time when one of the Swiss brands like did something special here, because you're right, they they tend to forget us. Well, you know, I, I've thought about this a lot, and you're right. On the one hand, we can be like, hey, why don't you think about us? But I actually think that we um we confuse them, and here's why. They're used to cities being like a place that you can drive across. That's why they understand Manhattan. Manhattan is like literally it has it's bordered by water. You know, you can they understand it. And outside of Manhattan, they never do anything, if you notice. So yeah. Manhattan, they can wrap their mind around, just like they can wrap their mind around London or Paris or these cities that themselves are actually relatively manageable mentally. L.A. is like a region to them. They don't even see it as a city. It's a region. It's another place. Because they fundamentally need to control all, the, all of their decisions, they're limited by what they understand. Because they don't understand these types of regions they just don't know what to do here. And of course, they won't trust anyone local, even though there are 
a lot of really great watch retailers in Southern California. I mean, I know about you, but when I'm like out and about seeing watch retailers, when I see local California watch retailers, I like to hang out with them, you know? Yeah. I mean, it feels like it's been a while since I've hung out, obviously, for obvious reasons with anyone. But I mean, I guess I think of the watch community in LA as, or in Southern California as being like Beverly Hills and, you know, that core of Mono brand boutiques on Rodeo Drive and then Geary's with its big Rolex and Patek Philippe, you know, boutiques. Then I think of South Coast Plaza, which is like not even L.A. to those of us who know L.A. So it's kind of funny because I think the Swiss think of it as L.A., but it's, you know, in traffic. It's like a two hour drive. Exactly. Um, and then there are, you know, the kind of Chinese communities in, in San Gabriel that do incredible business, but don't. And maybe, you know, there are events centered on those stores. And I'm thinking, and you probably know them better, but they're those competing retailers um, that are sort of, you know, own all the brands between Richemont and Swatch and LVMH, but, you know, kind of have this showdown of clients in the San Gabriel area. But they're so exclusively catering to the Chinese market that they don't really figure into the kind of L.A. scene, I guess, um, and so I, I feel like those are the three blocks. But that's why I called it a region, because in, in New York, there's like there's one place. And if you if you invite people, pretty much anyone in, in, in Manhattan will go here. It's sort of like there's multiple little cities within it. And it's just too much for them to understand. Yeah, it's true. I mean, listen, L.A. is more confusing than, you know, a grid like Manhattan. It's it's a lot. And, and it does take some time to navigate and understand and grasp. But you know, I'm sure they have people here in their U.S. offices who are, you know, familiar with the area and could spend some time here and figure it out. It's not really that, you know, it's a major global city. So I don't know. I go back and forth with thinking that they're starting to give. You don't think they would have done that by now? I mean, it's 2021. You don't think that, you know, the last 40 years of doing business in this part of the world, you know, longer, actually. Some of like I think of Patek Philippe and they've had a few nice events here, you know, at the Sunset Tower and once at the Beverly Hills Hotel over the years. And I think of their lovely publicist, who I'm friends with, Jessica Kingsland, who's always trying to coordinate something here. And so there are the occasional nice events, and especially, you know, there are gorgeous mansions that are in the hills somewhere or off on some, uh, like, Bel Air Drive that, you know, you you do every now and then get an invite to some cool event that has, um, you know, views for days and just like a cool milieu and lots of beautiful people hanging out. But yeah, it, it does feel like an afterthought to, you know, really New York and, and maybe occasionally Miami and the design district obviously also takes, seems to take more precedence. LA is just an opportunity because what I find interesting here is that if you already like watches, there's stuff for you to do and, you know, stores for you to go to. But there's like, there's no marketing in LA that turns locals into watch lovers if they aren't already, unless they like have the right group of friends or stumble upon, you know, writing about watches, which intrigues them. There's absolutely none of of the, the retail people or the brands themselves saying, Hey, LA locals, let's make you into customers for our stuff. You ever notice that? Yeah. I, you know, I never really thought about that. I mean, I guess I, I've been, you know, I'm really friendly with the the Simonians who run Westheim, of course. Of course, have all the 
you know, whatever mono brand stores they're currently running with, Richard Mill, and I don't know if they do Audemars Piguet anymore or not. They do, they do, I think, yeah. Right, so like I'm friendly with those guys and I've always gotten the impression that they just have more business than they're capable of handling. So they don't need to go out and like transform newbies into collectors or, or think about marketing in that way because they are really dealing with, you know, every collector who, you know, has any sort of... Uh, any collection to speak of here must know of West time and must go to them for certain needs. Cause they are the dealers and they're the ones who represent, you know, Okay, I, I want to say something right now, and this opens up a can of worms. So I don't want to get too into it, but let's say for, uh, for argument's sake that companies like West time, which again, I think does a fantastic job, just like some of the others here in Southern California, especially in LA, Feldmar, Bindi, um, mm-hmm. you know, areas, like you said, um, but they also do a lot of business outside of Los Angeles. So a large number of the watches uh, that these stores sell are actually sold to people who are outside of, of Los Angeles, and those watches are shipped. Mm. And I, I I know for a fact that there's a, a very small level of focus on saying, hey, I bet there's a bunch of people who could afford watches in L.A. that would buy them if they knew more about them. There really isn't anything towards that. So these are businesses that that do a little bit of shipping outside of the city to different degrees for different businesses. But they are more like warehouses where watch brands are like, oh, yeah, we got stock on the West Coast. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. And that it's not surprising. I you know, you're right. I mean, L.A., the one thing I can say is, and, and this is sort of a, a, a little bit of a tangent, but bear with me. About a year ago, I, when the pandemic, well, a little over a year ago when the pandemic first hit and our first lockdowns, I, you know, when all those watch collector groups went online and started doing Zoom calls every Wednesday or whatever with their collectors, I did a story for the Times about these groups. And I was struck by how many different competing groups there were in the LA area or in Southern California in general and how how they kind of seem like rivals in a way, which oh, yeah. confused me. Um, and I, you know, I still don't understand the politics that separate those groups, but it, it did strike me that there was already a very thriving collector community here. Now that's not necessarily the the newbies or those people that might be collectors one day if they were nurtured and cultivated properly. But, you know, I, I was struck by how many people there are in this, in this region that, um, like to go online and talk watches all day long. And I, I don't know, I guess because it is such a far-flung city and you, it, it is hard to kind of come across these people in your day-to-day. Although, as an aside, I was yesterday having lunch for my mom's birthday at Joffrey's, that fancy place in Malibu. Okay. Right next to us, there was some guy who went up to the guy lunching with his girlfriend and started talking about the Rolex on his wrist and pointing out the Rolex on his own wrist. And they were sitting there like just talking Rolex the whole time. And oh, I, there are a lot of watch people in Southern California of all different backgrounds. There are a lot. You're totally right. Yeah. So I guess the fact that the Swiss have seemed to overlook us or treat, a, treat us as that proverbial redheaded stepchild um, is a real miss on their part. I mean, they they should listen to this and figure it out. Why, why do you think from your years of experience that the the Europeans, or maybe it's just the Swiss, are, are fundamentally distrusting of delegating tasks to people from the U.S. We had a situation when you and I first started in the watch industry where there was a lot more actual Americans running watch brand you know activities and businesses in America. Now it seems to be a lot of people who are brought here from France or Switzerland to work for a few years, essentially run the markets 
um, it, it, there seems to be a, a inability to trust or want to assign an American to do a very American job. Why do you think that is? You know, I mean, my first thought is probably a little, a little insulting. My first thought is just a, a little bit of arrogance, you know, that sort of it's sort of an arrogance that I guess goes back to Europe in general and America is this newcomer on the scene and, and it has lasted all these centuries. I mean, the fact is we're, we're an, we're an established market, but they still treat us like, um, like we're not as sophisticated. So, and I mean, not only are we an established market, I mean, we are the biggest market, are we not? So I I guess that's part of it. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how these groups run, but I guess a lot of them, and especially, you know, the ones that are groups, the Rishwants and LVMHs and Swatches, just have some real hierarchical structures. And I, I don't know how how they how they find their American representatives, but I feel like maybe that's changing. I mean, Audemars Piguet just named a woman, you know, a woman who comes from I believe she was at Kiehl's, the cosmetic brand, for a long time prior yeah. to now running one of the most important brands in the whole industry. And she was cool. I met You probably met her, too, when she came out to L.A. No, I don't think I had a chance to meet her yet. I think I've talked to her a little bit via email. Um, she, I actually wanted to interview her, and she's like, you know, I'm still really new here. I don't want to say stupid stuff, so let's talk in a little bit. Yeah, well, fair enough. She is new, and she does come from a background that, really is not watches at all and not even in some ways luxury, although I forget she may have some luxury in in her previous background before Kiehl's. But I mean, that's like a pretty bold move for a brand like Audemars. I, you know what? I actually uh, I actually disagree that it's bold and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. What I see is that they hired someone who would come with no preconceptions about what's supposed to be done in the watch industry, and they felt that they could tell him or her exactly what to do and they wouldn't question it. And they mostly want them to focus on things like um, relationship management, which really isn't so much about the watches, but more about you know high-level customer service that anybody could be good at. So I actually think that they wanted someone who they could mold to thinking about selling watches that they way they want, they want to do it. Because you'll have to admit that the current Audemars Piguet strategy is very, very distinct. And similar to Richard Mille requires a constant level of tweaking, um, you know, and string tuning and things like that to get right. I mean, them saying we don't want to have third-party retail and we only trust our own direct-to-consumer sales means that each of those relationships has to be managed in a way they're not selling a commodity. It's act. It's a little bit more like a social club. I mean, I don't know if that's fair to say at this point. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, listen, I, I, I find that FHB, Francois-Henri Benami. I believe is how you say the full name, <laughs> uh, the global CEO for Audemars. I mean, yeah, he he doesn't strike me as a as a man who questions his, um, you know, his strategy or his ideas much, and so. To, but I mean, but at the same time, like, what a useless gesture to hire like a a yes woman, you know, somebody who's just. Yes, gonna look, you're you're right. It's it's a very skeptical thing for me to say. I think that, but I think that it's true. I think that's exactly what it is. I don't know. I think that's unfair. But I, I think, you know, there's only going to be one way to find out, which is to sit here for a year or two or three and see, well, what what has this market done, you know? Let's look at what happened at Piaget, who uh, also had a, a female CEO, Chabi Nouri, who uh, I think a lot of people admired. And she had a great team. And she was there for uh, not too long. And, and then now she's gone. There's someone new. And they made a big deal out about... Sorry for... A, 
that's news to me. I actually did not know she was gone. Yes, yes, she's gone. Uh, it's it's relatively recent, uh, last you know I think two months or so, um, and you know they they really boosted the fact you know they, they, that it's a woman and that we're gonna you know give her the freedom to do all these different things. Um, I don't know how much she was able to accomplish. I know that she and her team had a lot of ideas and that there was frustration because of abilities to execute or desires to execute. And now they seem to be backtracking, going to a system that was a lot more like uh, the past. And so I think that there's a lot of um, hiring of CEOs that look good because it looks different, it looks interesting, it looks trendy or innovative. But at the end of the day, the, the, the rigid mechanisms in the background are still sort of retained and that there's a lot of structural issues to getting novel ideas implemented. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I know with Shabby and I did meet her once. It was probably around the Spirit Awards, which Piaget used to sponsor, which, you know, are the independent film. Yeah, awards yeah. That, which was cool. That was cool. Oh, my God. So much fun. I used to I mean, I literally went for like a decade every year. I know those are great, right? Floating <laughs> so away cool. on, a, on a sea of Jameson at the end of the. the <laughs> um, and I think I met her one of those years when she'd earlier right when she joined. And, you know, it was one of those sort of stuffy breakfasts, but she was nice and, and obviously seemed capable and committed. But when I tried to actually interview her over the years, I never was able to get through to her. I, I couldn't tell if she didn't want to be interviewed or if she was just so somehow backed up. But I just don't trust somebody that is never available for an interview. To me, it's like, how can that be? You know, I understand you're busy, but Really, I mean, if you don't want to be in it, and this is for the time, so this is like big time, you know, as global coverage as you could ever want for your brand. Um, and so I, I don't know, I didn't know what to make of that. I couldn't tell if it was a personal thing or if she was hamstrung by by Richemont Corporate. I mean, yeah, that's I what know, it is. I don't know if I'll ever know, but it was frustrating, and it made me realize I don't think I'll ever cover Piaget because I, I just can't actually get through to somebody. So let's talk a little bit about that. You. You more than me are a trained journalist. You know, you're, you're sort of getting your feet wet in this industry was covering it from a, a more journalistic perspective, not as much as sort of an editorial perspective as someone like myself, though your ideas, of course, come across in your writing. But what's the difference, you know, if you had to sort of sum it up, between covering the watch industry and the jewelry industry? A lot of people associate them as being highly related and Yes, they're often sold in the same stores, but I guess we can start with the assumption that these are very different industries. They are. They really are. I mean, on on some level, at that very high level, when you're talking about high jewelry, you're talking about the same houses because you're talking about Cartier and Bulgari and Van Cleef and Arpels. And so you're still talking about those same corporate structures. But on the whole, when you're talking about jewelry, you're talking about independent makers, family-run businesses. They're not corporate giants. They're not owned by... Uh, you know, either luxury groups or, or really anyone. They are entirely independent. They're artisans and they are just much less slick, much less, um, you know, hierarchical. It's a lot easier to reach out and talk to a CEO or just DM them or text them or whatever and, you know, get a call on the books that afternoon or the next day. So it's just, you know, the layers of people who you have to get through to in order to interview somebody on the executive team or in the C-suite in the watch world, especially the Swiss watch world, you know, it takes weeks and, and it's agonizing because often, you know, you don't have weeks, you have days or, or at most a week. And so there's just a lot of like 
nonsense corporate hoops you have to jump through in the watch world that you don't have to jump through in the jewelry industry. Um, but you know, they are united by certain things. Obviously there are materials that combine those two. And the reason they've always been sold by in some of the same people, it's always been jewelry stores where you go to buy, you know, a watch, whether, you know, a multi-brand retailer, it's mostly jewelers who sell jewelry and watches. And in fact, in the U S I mean, that business, what, you know, was, I mean, it was originally a watchmaking business and it was watchmakers in lower Manhattan who then from there sprouted the jewelry business. And so they were always, you know, kind of parallel trades, all relying on the same sort of sources for their materials, their gold, their diamonds. Um, and I think it really, really was only in the probably, you know, early 2000s when those monobrand boutiques and that kind of watch-only business developed in, in a way that seemed to kind of go off on a tangent away from that typical jewelry or jeweler model. What, what, the, what direction or tangent would you say that, that, that took exactly? Well, I mean, it just, again, I mean, a lot of the watch businesses is now a part of, a, you know, a lot of those watchmakers are part of groups. I mean, the ones that are independent still need the retailers. And there are a handful of those retailers that we know, like the West Times of the world that are exclusively watch people. But primarily those stores are, you know, all the Rolex dealers, they tend to sell jewelry too. So I sort of lost the plot on the question, but I mean, the, that's... Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, again, you're just, we're, we're talking about the differences between the watch industry and the jewelry industry. You know, assume that the people listening to this know a little bit more about the watch industry than the jewelry industry. Try to explain, like on a day-to-day -day basis, what's different between the personalities, maybe the way they make the money, the things, uh, the way they have to sell, the way they have to market... I mean, you know, it's it, this is always very separated. Even the companies do both of these things. There's the watch people and there's the jewelry people. These people have like completely separate jobs. Like they don't even share that many resources, even though, like you said, sold in the same place and they use a lot of the same materials. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it really depends on sort of what part of the jewelry business you're talking about because there's, it is a, a vast world. It's it's largely opaque. I mean, I think for watches, because of their way they, they're structured and owned by luxury groups that have to report, you know, to shareholders, there's a lot more transparency. So jewelry just tends to be a lot more opaque because it's these small family-run businesses. Many of them go back generations. Um, you know, some people in the jewelry business are specialists in colored stones. They come from a long line of emerald dealers that were originally you know, refugees from Afghanistan um, or Colombian emerald dealers, or, you know, they are diamond dealers. And of course, you know, those industries are little worlds onto themselves. So, you know, if you're a specialist in diamonds, you, maybe you're Israeli and you've got a family business that cuts diamonds out of Ramat Gan in Israel. I mean, these are places and locations and like Antwerp and um, of course, New York. I mean, a lot of these locations for the watch world, they would never, who, who's ever heard of Ramat Gan? I mean, unless you're, you've got <laughs> Israel, you, it's a diamond, it's the diamond center. It's the 47. Right. The, the jewelry people feel uh, closer to the earth, if you will. Yeah. I mean, and they are, and they're just, there's a, like a lot, they're just a lot less corporate. I mean, they're, even those watchmakers that have, you know, that have this sort of, they might like cite their heritage and the fact that they, you know, go back to some village in the Swiss Alps or the Jura back in the 1700s. But, you know, how many times have they changed hands? 
how many slick brochures have been produced to sort of create the mystique around this heritage. And whereas the jewelry industry, honestly, it is just a lot of small families that have that kind of generational understanding and generational knowledge passed on from father to son to daughter to, you know, grandchildren. I mean, I've always found jewelry to be ultimately more interesting, maybe because it's more opaque and because it's a little harder to penetrate. I mean, in jewelry, you know, it's a world that you, you think about dealers in, you know, fleeing the Holocaust and, you know, the communities in, say, Amsterdam and Antwerp where they were diamond dealers. I mean, they took their wealth and they put it in their pocket and they fled to New York or, or you know, uh, wherever, you know, the state somewhere. There's just like a lot, there's like a lot more mystery to to the way the jewelry is made and and, and the heritage and the provenance of it. I mean, watches seem a little more like, I don't know, like there's just a lot more sort of, how do I put it? Um, Hold on, let me me struggle for the right answer. Like- I have so much to say right now. (laughs) There's just like a lot more artifice around, you know, like we build mystiques around like watch history, but with jewelry, it's just there. Like these stones, you have a handful of emeralds and tourmalines and sapphires. I mean, those things do- Watches have a certain special challenge that jewelry doesn't seem to have. And that is- uh, what I call justification. The idea is, why would you wear something so lavish or so expensive or so complicated? It constantly needs to justify its own existence. Whereas jewelry, it just needs to be pretty and exclusive and make you look good or feel good. And it doesn't seem to need more than that. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I guess for a lot of people it doesn't, although for some people it does. I mean, sure. jewelry can be you know, incredibly artful and have beautiful you know, meaning baked into the way it's made or the way it's been sourced. And, and, but yes, I mean, you're right. I mean, I think watches are, gosh, I'm sitting here trying to think of these two worlds. I mean, I've reported on both for 20 years, but it's like, I get to go to mines and like go down into the earth and see where these raw materials come from and how they're shaped and traded and eventually, you know, move up the value chain I mean, that's way more interesting to me than going to a Swiss watch factory, which just feels very clinical and very corporate. And, you know, in some ways, you know, impressive. It's an impressive operation to see Omega make, you know, a gazillion Speedmasters in in this watch. <laughs> but you're, you're seeing different things being made. Watches are tools. It's basically like seeing fancy hammers being made. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, to me, the, the watches, and I've never been a technical watch writer like honestly i i glaze over when people start talking about like you know the details and the movement and the torque and the this and the that i it just it to me i understand that for for a lot of watch lovers that is the very point the very point is the mechanics and the artistry of this kind of ballet of components that work together in concert but i've always much more appreciated just like the cultural story around around Swiss watches and some of these interesting histories that are real, even if they're somewhat manufactured or embellished to make a good branding story. Okay. So let me let me use wa- the difference between watches and jewelry to sort of talk about, I guess something which is a little bit challenging these days, but to talk a little bit about the gender differences be- behind um, how men and women want to express themselves with what, with what they wear. Okay. And, 
as I said with jewelry, it's okay for the jewelry wearer to wear jewelry merely to enhance their image. The sole purpose of wearing this item is to decorate yourself, enhance yourself, essentially to, to communicate. And often in a way that says, I'm better than something else. It's an empowering thing. It's meant to make you look more attractive, more powerful, more exclusive, more wealthy. Um, it's, 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 an, it's a visual upgrade every single time. You know, would you agree that that is a, a goal of jewelry? I mean, it is definitely 100% a goal of jewelry. Is it the only goal or the most important goal? I mean, I definitely think that could be argued. Okay, what would you say is the, the most important goal of wearing jewelry? Well, I think it, it varies. And it, it, there was an exhibit, and by the way, I didn't get a chance to see this exhibit, but I did report on it, it at the Met. Uh, this it opened in 2018, and it was called The Body Adorned, and it was about jewelry um, and its place in human history and culture. And and it's just varied over the years. I mean, there were, obviously there are jewels that are, are used in religious ceremonies. I mean, there were jewels that were meant to bring you closer to God. There were jewels that were meant as, you know, keepsakes. There were certain jewels that were never brought out except for incredibly special ceremonies. So these weren't jewels meant to enhance your look or status. They were meant to, you know, help you commune with, with higher powers. So it, it sort of depends on the time and place you're talking about. But jewelry is a really a, a very, like, in, much more important role in human history than watches. I mean, much more. It, it's been around longer. It's been around longer. It's universal. It's timeless. I mean, watch every, watch a single movie. And there's almost, in every movie, and I'm not joking, there there is at least one scene where there is some sort of jewel exchange or interaction around a jewel, often a some sort of ring for a betrothal, but it could be something else. It could be, I mean, jewelry is is pretty baked into our very psyches as a critical connection point between us and you know the world around us. So I I feel pretty strongly about that. But you know, of course, status, power, um, you know, desire are key elements, especially in this day and age. So it again, jewelry's purpose and place has varied. It, it really depends on the culture you're talking about and, and the time and the time we're talking about. I'm I'm actually making it super simple. There's a room of people. Somebody's wearing jewelry. The people who see the person wearing jewelry come to a conclusion about them. The jewelry literally changes what they think about that person. Um maybe. It has a visual effect. If it didn't change what you thought or felt about the person who's wearing it, it would have no value. No one would put on jewelry if it didn't affect the emotion of the onlooker. I, I would argue that. Like, I have jewelry, for instance, we just gave my mom yesterday for her 75th birthday. That My dad purchased it, but my sister and I kind of brokered the deal of a beautiful pendant that was a white gold pendant with a ruby at the center for her birthday, engraved with her initials NG um, on the back. And my son's name is Nikolai Gregory, or his his first and middle name. And so we talk about that piece being an heirloom that maybe one day he'll want to wear. You know, it, it's a beautiful pendant, a little feminine, but I don't, I mean, I hope he doesn't care or that, that the fact that it's a necklace isn't going to be something he has issue with. The point is, that like jewelry is a keepsake of somebody special in his life. And when I wear jewelry, it's usually because it's something that is meaningful to me because it's either came to me as a gift from somebody. It's not ah. about what other people think. It's about this 
heirloom. What else are you going to give people that lasts long after they're gone? Well, wait, 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 wait. This is interesting that you mentioned this. I think that if you take something that is potentially jewelry, like a pendant, and you wear it hidden under your shirt, for example, where only you can see it, you are now taking something that could be jewelry and you're wearing it as something else, which is a personal message. But I think that when you wear things as jewelry, it's explicitly supposed to be visible. I think that you can repurpose jewelry, but I think that it is, it is when you wear something externally like that, that is sort of a jewelry function. Right. Okay. So let's, let's go with that. What if you wear it because you want it to be visible, but it's not because you want people to think you're rich or maybe that's like just, you know, number five in a list of, of things that you care about. Maybe you want them to ask you about it because you want to say, oh my God, my mom owned this and I got nothing, nothing wrong with that. But the primary reason you have it is to attract attention, want to have a conversation. Even if what you're saying is totally cute and innocent and nice, you're trying to say something about yourself to the world. Now, again, just, just go with me here. And again, there's a, there's a spectrum here. And jewelry is that. And there's men and women that wear jewelry. Watches, people who like watches. And I wrote about this actually last night, uh, coincidentally. I haven't published it yet. This is sort of going to psychology. I come up with this term called inadvertent signaling. And the idea is that you say something with what you're wearing, but apparently by accident. And this is crucial to the experience for a lot of men wearing watches. And that is, yes, I'm wearing an expensive watch that might be made out of gold, but my primary reason for wearing it is, I just gotta tell the time, that it says something else is, well, that's sort of a, a side effect or an accident, but it's not primarily what this item is for. Guys sort of need that. <laughs> yeah, and but you know, the funny thing with watches is like, especially the most expensive watches, and we talk about this all the time, it's not like anybody who's, you know, you have to know a lot about watches to recognize the most expensive pieces. I mean, and also like recognizing any watch from any distance is pretty damn near impossible. I mean, so I don't even know what I'm where I'm going with that, but except to say I'll, that, I'll, well, go ahead. I'll tell you another story. This is funny. I've seen certain watches over the years that have eschewed telling the time. So it's been, it looks like a watch, it wears like a watch, it might even have a mechanical movement that does things, but it doesn't tell the time. And I've, we, you and I, we both seen some experiments about this. It's not common, but it has happened. Those watches failed pretty miserably. Maybe if they were super limited, they sold, but no one said they wanted more of those, meaning it didn't create any extra demand. There was no bubble around watches that don't tell the time. Even the wildest of wild watches still need to tell the time or some function like that or more in order to be legitimized as being wearable for the average watch consumer. Yes, I would agree with that. I would and agree I think that's that. interesting because jewelry wouldn't need that. You could just wear the watch on your wrist, even if it just had spinning gears and looked awesome, told you nothing. But when it doesn't actually perform a utilitarian task, you've lost like 95% of the, the wristwatch wearing market. Yeah. I mean, I just think we've been, you know, taught that watches are tools. And if they, if that essential tool function, which is time telling, is not available or somehow there, although I think about like Frank Mueller and his crazy watches and all his kind of like avant-garde ways of displaying time or thinking about time, and even though he's not really a f presence anymore in this industry, he sure was, and he sure did leave a mark. So there was obviously something to say about watches that played with the idea of timekeeping 
But they still told him for the most part. I yeah, even though it it took a little, <laughs> it took some some effort. Think uh, about like the secret hours and stuff yeah, like that. Fun stuff, crazy fun stuff. hours and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen those watches, and I guess I mean there are new entrants in that field, like all those kind of you know what is it? What is the um not HYT but the uh, well maybe it is HYT like the people who tell watches using fluids and yeah they just went out of business. Yes, I. <laughs> to your point um yeah so going back to the original concept uh watches um are excellent at this this notion i called inadvertent signaling where the guy wearing it wants to say something in the world about himself i'm active i'm confident in how i look i make a lot of money i'm successful i'm a winner i love i have a boat you know stuff like that they there are ways of saying this but they don't explicitly say it. You know what I mean? Like if if that person wore a T-shirt that just said like, I got a lot of money in the bank, that would be considered rude and impolite. <laughs> but yeah. if you had a watch with diamonds on it, no one is like, you know, that is overtly rude. Sometimes it is. It goes over the line. But oftentimes you're like, um, I'm oddly okay with this behavior, even though I feel morally odd about the the amount of value on the wrist but you know it, it, i guess it's just a watch you know they they just need to tell the time and all like we're it, we get we get we get a pass for otherwise rude behavior that way yeah i guess you could look at it that way um yeah i mean it's weird because and i i don't know exactly i mean i assume most of your friends that are your friends not through this industry kind of look at this world of watches with like a huh I mean, most of the people in my life that I spend my time with are not watch people. And so I do get a good dose of like, what the fuck, you know, why are, how are you talking to people with, who think that like $10,000 is an entry price? Be you know? It is, it is definitely something weird, but everyone, and I mean, everyone understands the item, which is the status symbol. Everyone understands the power of driving uh, a Ferrari or wearing gold or something like that. And when you can create a more nuanced version of that on your wrist, people are like, okay, I may not understand how a watch can send a message because I don't know that world, but I definitely understand the idea of something you wear telling somebody a very strong statement about yourself. Yes, agreed, <laughs> agreed. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about covering watches and things like that. A lot of people are interested in the behind, behind the scenes. Did it become weird to you at one point where, like, 
to these weird new people, watch blogging became a glamorous thing. And you started seeing these people that were there because they thought it was like a prestigious thing. Was that sort of a weird moment for you? I mean, I, it wasn't a moment, you know, it was very gradual, although it probably started around what, like 2008. I mean, I remember meeting Ben Clymer from Hodinkee many years ago, you know, early on when I don't even know how big Hodinkee was. It certainly wasn't big at all. And I met you. God, when did I meet you? I mean, would it have been early, like 15 years ago or so? Yeah, about 15 years ago. I mean, so it wasn't a moment. It was gradual. But, you know, I've met a Yeah, I mean, I... So this is within the last five years. I'm not talking about when we started. I'm talking about when it, it, it was like these influencers came in and everyone was like, I'm a blogger when they didn't even write anything. I'm not talking about when we first started entering the scene. I'm talking about when it became trendy to say that you cover watches as though it was some type of like, like career or pastime that people admired. Or maybe you didn't notice that. I don't know that I did. I mean, I can think of maybe a couple of people who did start covering watches in the last five years and it did feel like a little more opportunistic right? than genuine. And, you know, honestly, whatever, like knock yourself out. If you're making a living or having a good time or like making your ends meet doing this, fine. You're not really taking away from the work that I'm doing because I'm doing much different work. You know, I'm doing... I have been doing this for 20 years, so I don't really worry about um, or think about them that much, except when I see them at events and I'm just like, oh, you're here. Um, but whatever. I, I really, it, it's all good. Now, go go back a little bit and think about some of the first times you've covered watches. Um, where did you sort of start to realize, like, this is an area that requires a different mentality than maybe jewelry or, or did jewelry come first and then it went to watches? Or did you start them at the same time? I'm just assuming that you started with watches after jewelry at some point. Correct. I was hired um, by a publication called Gem Key. Well, actually Ooh. it was, it must've been right, right at the same time. My first job in this very world, I was a graduate student doing a nonfiction writing program at Columbia university and I had uh, just finished the coursework for my MFA degree in nonfiction writing, and I needed a job. It was 2000, and I was in New York, and I wasn't ready to leave. I just needed to, I was still finishing up my thesis, so I needed to basically just, you know, get a job. And it happened to be um, the, the, dot, the first dot-com wave was still, you know, sort of roiling, and there were so many jobs. And I was on monster.com looking for, you didn't really ask this backstory, by the way, but I'm telling you just to give you the No, I, I, it's a great story. You told me this years ago. We talked about it, but I, I, it's a great story. That You just sort of was a random thing. Yeah, so I happened to see on Monster.com, there was a luxury goods website, a B2B website, looking for a reporter with two to three years experience. And it had absolutely no details whatsoever. It literally did not even have a fax number, which is, by the way, how people communicated and applied for jobs way back when. Um, I, all it said was click here on this monster.com, you know, page to forward your profile to this employer. So I just thought, okay, click, whatever. I didn't even think about it. And a couple of days went by and I heard from a woman, I got a call from a woman named Lisa at Gemkey, Gemkey. And I'm thinking, what's Gemkey? I have no idea. <laughs> and it turned out it was this website based in Bangkok founded by, um, 
Fred Mowad, who was the son of Robert Mowad. Robert Mowad's a, a sort of a Lebanese businessman who ended up, who funded the Geological Institute of America's beautiful campus in Carlsbad, California. So a big jeweler, lots of money. And he had a son who was kind of a very early, you know, internet pioneer and entrepreneur who had several businesses based out of Bangkok, one of which was this company called Gemkey that was basically meant to be a trading website for jewelry retailers to go and source inventory online. I mean, how laughable it is that this was founded in 2000 when people were still using fax machines and basically had no capabilities at all online. I mean, it was so way ahead of its time. It's like hilarious. But they founded this website and they were hiring for the news portion. They wanted content. I mean, honestly, they were doing what we do now, except way, way back when it just, there was not like a mentality for that. And so I was hired as a new editor and I covered pearls and watches, neither of which I knew at all. I mean, I couldn't have told you what a cultured pearl was, nor could I have named three brands beyond like Rolex and Cartier. I mean, or right. maybe Movado, maybe, you know, I honestly had zero, zero knowledge of either of these worlds, but within Weeks of being hired, I went to the JCK Las Vegas show, which is a huge show now owned by my current employer, uh, big biggest jewelry trade show in the. That is a massive show, like insanely big. It's a massive, massive show, and even though the watch presence there today is much smaller, back in two thousand, you know, my introduction to that world was an Ebel party at some penthouse in Vegas where there was naked models standing amidst ice sculptures, you know, as they like dripped all around them. I mean, it was just so wild and over the top. It was kind of like, oh my God. Up, up until about 2008, I heard there was a lot of that going on. There was like was a 10 year stretch. There was a lot of that stuff going on. There was a lot of nakedness. And honestly, for like, <laughs> I must've been 25 and it was just like, <laughs> whoa. I mean, but even more importantly, and this is where the distinction between my love of covering jewelry versus watches come in. Within weeks, I was also sent to a pearl farm in northern Australia. And on the way, I stopped in Bangkok to meet my colleagues who were all based in Bangkok. And then I landed in Darwin and went had this crazy pearl experience. And on the way out, I stopped in Hong Kong to go to the pearl auctions. And I've, I'd always been a traveler. I'd backpacked through Southeast Asia and Central America prior to this, you know, landing this job. But for me, like getting, getting paid to go to these crazy places was like, was everything. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. That's, I guess, where the irony is. The generation from today, they believe that that still goes on. It's um, There are rare positions like you have, but the availability of writing jobs for watches or jewelries is vanishingly thin these days. Vanishingly thin. It really is. I mean, it is a much different world. And obviously, you know, I was under the cloak of a trade publication, a lot of people sort of sniff their noses or like kind of look down on trades, but trades are where you really, A, you get to take these opportunities because there's no like, um, you know, highbrow. We, uh, there's just like the conflict of interest is just less of an issue because even though you are on somebody's dime going to cover this pearl farm, there's no other way you'd be able to report back to yeah, good audience without going and taking advantage of this trip. So I was and you're, not, you're not talking about like politics or the stock market or anything like that. No, and that's the thing about jewelry and watches too. It's like, you know, I, I, you know, I try to be very 
very open. Like if I take a trip with somebody, I'm not going to write about them when I come home. It's like, but who cares if I do? It's all about selling the dream. The idea is this. They're supposed to convey the dream to us. It has to be an authentically good experience. And then we tell the world, when you're with this brand, you have a good time. They do cool stuff and their products are made well. Like they just need to give us the experience and we convey it to others. That's, That's when it works the best. I mean, agreed. It's like, I just consider them relationship building gestures because honestly, we're not writing about pharmaceuticals or arms or, you know, we are, look, or, you know look, things that- we are writing for people who have high disposable income. We are not necessarily people that have the, uh, the money to purchase the vast majority of the things that we cover. With that said, we need to get in their minds. If we're going to give them advice on how to live the good life, how to buy the right stuff and avoid the wrong stuff. We have to go where they go, do what they do, wear what they wear, live it. It is it is training for us. Yes, there is some nice side effects, especially when travel's happening. I can't wait for it to come back. But at the end of the day, we have a high responsibility to very, very finicky people to help them make complicated decisions. And that is where to spend a limited amount of high luxury dollars into jewelry, experiences, all kinds of stuff like that. Like we we are serving a valuable purpose in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I guess I think about my role though a little differently than you do because you're a much more, you know, you're opinionated, you wield those opinions. There's, it's pretty clear. But to me, I, I don't really actually have a lot of opinions about, I mean, I do in my personal you do. Life. It comes across. When you like something, people know it. I, I guess, but I try to think about it really much more clinically because that's really more my, my place in this world is to sort of report it out, to write about it, not to sort of say this is a way to spend your money or not. I mean, I can lay out the details and the facts and quote the people as I see fit and you can make that call. But I, I don't sit there and like, not to mention, I'm not really a watch. I mean, I do own a fair bit of watches and I do love them. And I'm definitely the kind of person who wants to have a watch on their wrist at all points of the day. But I'm not a collector and I don't like fiend over these things in the way that a lot of people do. But you have a watch named after you, the Gamelski by <laughs> Shinola, right? I do. I do. Tell, tell, tell that story. So that story is is definitely random as can be, but it was 2013 and I had a, an appointment with Shinola at Baselworld. It was their very first uh, time exhibiting at the show. They had just been founded and, you know, their founder, Tom Kartsotis, was, was there. And unbeknownst to me, well, actually, before I even get there, I'll just say what happened was I walked up to my appointment expecting to meet the PR person I'd made the appointment with and out of nowhere bounds this like very tall man wearing denim and kind of floppy hair. And he starts shaking my hand saying, oh, great, come on in. And I'm thinking, who is this man? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I just have no idea. I'm very confused. And I, as it turns out, it's the CEO, Tom Kartsotis, former co-founder of Fossil. Fossil yeah. His stake in the business to his brother, founded Shinola as this sort of dream to you know, rebuild American watchmaking. Some people would argue, you know, an opportunist who saw 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 a way to sort of make good on the Detroit, you know, the Detroit name and the Detroit kind of, I guess, the idea of Detroit. What's but, America without some opportunism? Right. I mean, listen, I, I've had a very good relationship with Tom over the years, but in any case, he led me into this appointment. He starts showing me all the watches. 
I finally realize he's the CEO. I wonder myself, why is the CEO wasting his time with me? Like, I'm just a reporter here to see the collection. No, nothing big. And towards the end, we get to the women's watch that Shinola has made. You know, the the bulk of the watches he'd shown me at that point were based on railroad styles of the, you know, late 18, pardon me, the late 1900s. No, it was the 1800s, of course. And it was like the early 20th century watches that were all like large, you know, built to to help time the railroads and to, to help the way the, train, the trains ran across America. They were very American, you know, like one was called the Runwell, another was called I guess the birdie, and he comes to this cushion-shaped lady style, and he says, you know, we haven't been able to come up with a name for it. Do you have any suggestions? And I'm just thinking, is this a trick question? I'm like, I don't. I have zero suggestions. And then he says, well, what's your name? And I'm like, you know, Victoria. And he's like, what's your last name? Gamelski. And he just says, the Gamelski. And I'm just thinking, are you, like, pulling my leg? Are you shooting, like taking the piss? What are you doing? Like, it wasn't that funny to me, but I kind of went along with it. And I was like, ha ha ha. Sure. You know, thinking he's totally joking. And then that evening I run into the publicist at a bar in Basel. I think it was the Three Kings legendary bar where all the Americans congregate and, uh, or used to. And she's like, yeah, we were talking about your last name for hours after you left the booth today. And I'm thinking, how is that funny? I just really didn't get it. And I still didn't get it a month later when they called me and said, by the way, they're going to name this model the Gamelski. We hope you don't mind. And, you know, you can't copyright names. And so there wasn't like, they didn't have to get clearance from me. They just wanted to make sure I was kind of cool with it just to be nice. So they ended no, up- they, they needed to get clearance from you. That would have been a bad idea to not get clearance from you. I guess, but it's not like I got any money or got, you know, there was nothing formal. I didn't have to sign anything to say you can, you can use my name. I mean, they just used it, which it was, was it's flattering. It's flattering. It was flattering. So I wasn't complaining. Um, they ended up basically naming this watch, the Gamelski, but it's not like the Gamelski was, it only appeared on advertising. And in fact, it appeared on a big ad that I happen to have hanging here in this very office that I'm speaking to you from. Ran in the New York Times that September, full page ad during Fashion Week that uh, basically, I'll have to walk over and see the exact wording. So I'm not going to leave the computer right now. But it was basically like, why did we name this thing the Gamelski, you know? And it was just hilarious because suddenly, you know, this name that is a very humble name, not an American name because I was born in Russia and the name itself is from um, a town in Belarus called Gomel that my, you know, very, my forebearers came from. But so it was flattering and they named it. And the, the best part is that in 2016, that women's piece spawned a whole brand that did in fact have Gamelski on the dial. So now, now the sad part is there's it's a, a brand. Oh yeah. It became a brand and it had, Oh my gosh. And you're still not in on it. No, I'm still not in on it. I did. Okay. We gotta, we gotta do, we gotta do something about this. Well, no, I have to, I have to tell you, there's like a whole, like, you know, a PS to this story, which is that in early 2020, I learned that Gamelski, the brand, which was marketed as a kind of a product of Shinola, but it had its own boot, sort of shop and shops inside certain Shinola stores. And like I said, Gamelski's on the dial and you look on the back of the case, it says made proudly by Shinola in Detroit. Um, Gamelski went into rehab. So Gamelski is now available on like sites like Chrononext and, you know, Nordstrom Rack. I mean, I literally wandered into a Nordstrom Rack 
like two weeks ago and found a bunch of discount Gamelskis on the table. So it it didn't. Oh, you're on sale. They're on sale. And like, I'm intending to buy them because they're really beautiful watches. You should do that. You're like, that's my name. Can I have it for less? I'm buying them all up. You know, Because you think you'll have a lot of them and then someday people want them again. You're like, you know, it has a thousand of them. I mean, the thing is, they're just cool looking watches. Like beyond, if you just never look at the name on the dial, they're like, they've got, I've got one with a malachite dial. I've got this cool, um, like a venturine dial. I've given ones to my sister and my mom. They have... They're just beautiful. I have to go look right now. I have to go look right now. I have see I saw I knew the original ones, but whatever came later, I don't know that I saw. Yeah, it was a brand. Just it, it was a brand and had I hold I wrote a whole first person of your time story about it. So it's definitely, you know, it's been really Oh wow, there it is. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, they're really beautiful. They're women's pieces. They're very much framed that way and positioned that way. And it was like the whole branding behind it was fascinating. And I still wear them and I'm proud to wear them, but it's kind of funny because they're definitely not around as like a primary source anymore. That's fantastic. I just think that's such a great story because, um, you know, you you look at these products a lot and you have no idea who's behind it or the stories or anything like that. And the watch industry is full of these strange coincidences and larger than life reasons that things are the way they are, you know, um, especially why watches get named. I mean, sometimes I remember like, you know, at Jacob and company, you know, sometimes he'd just be like, you, um, I want you to buy the first one. So uh, I'll, I'll let you name it. And he just like weird things like that are why a lot of watches have a design, a color, a name. And sometimes knowing it um, adds a sort of richness, which isn't there in the surface level. Oh, 100%. Like when I, when I first came across Shinola, I actually did a story for the Times about names of watches and things like, you know, where did the Reverso name come from? And where did the El Primero come from? And there, there were so many rich stories about that. You know, the Royal Oak, these kind of the Calatrava, whatever, the Nautilus, the, you know, you can go for hours, you could spend talking about the origins of these names, but they do add a richness. And I love that kind of story. Now, let's talk about today. Um, I think the jewelry industry is, of course, in a different position than the watch industry. The watch industry during the pandemic has, of course, uh, had a massive reduction in a lot of the business because of a lack of tourism and events and things like that. But people that like watches are definitely still getting them. You have been covering the industry for a long time, and you're a smart person, and you see some of the things they do which are good and some of the things that they, they, they do which are not as good. What do you hope the watch industry will do more of, some of, any of in the next several years in order to remain competitive? Because I think you and I both really admire the industry. Mm-hmm. And even though we also have, we have a lot of criticism for it, we actually want what's best for the industry. We want there to be a rich, robust, happening watch industry with cool events and, and things for us to write about and, and, and to go visit. And so what do you recommend uh, that some of the, you know, if you, had to, if you had to send a little message to some of the managers and stuff like that, what would it be? Well, I mean, probably a few things, but the the first thing that comes to mind, because it was such a big point of kind of general conversation in the watch industry that I follow and the kind of communities that I follow earlier this year was this whole gender conversation about should watches be gendered. Um, And it was remarkable that there were so many editorials that seemed to kind of crop up at the same time, but were seemed independent of each other, arguing mostly by women in this industry, but arguing for the fact that there, there, there was not a reason to 
to, to sort of gender watches. You don't walk into your car dealership and get pointed to the ladies' car section. But you don't sit there and tell women in advance, yes, this is the, this is the selection available to you. These are the women's watches. Oh, those watches, those are for men. I don't, those wouldn't look right on you. Like, you don't tell women what to buy. You don't tell them which watches they should consider. Why can't I wear something bigger? I mean, in fact, most of the watches I own are probably men's pieces other than my, you know, favored Gamelsky styles. Um, so that conversation to me certainly resonated. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of collectors in my, over the last couple of years, a lot of women collectors who are incredibly serious, incredibly astute. And, you know, most of them end up buying men's pieces and feel kind of resentful that men tell them what they should and shouldn't buy. So wait, wait, wait. Back, back up here, back up here. First of all, I want to know what the message to the brands is. Second, you're saying that women are, are being told that they uh, cannot or should not wear something because it's not designated for them? Well, I think often in, you know, you'll walk into a, or a lot of women have the experience of walking into a retailer and sort of looking around and being a goaded and sort of guided to the women's case. And if they say they want a piece that might be marketed or understood to be a men's piece, whatever that is, you know, they'll get some comments about, oh, that's probably too big for you or that's a men's style. Maybe you should consider this. I mean, I've read that women's accounts of that happening. Have I had that happen myself? No, but I honestly don't buy a lot of watches. Or if I do, you know, I, I sort of come across them or collect them in my in my days. But if I bought watches, I'd be, you, you know. You, you know what? I, I hate to say it, but I've actually had the same experience with some, like, women's watches. Like, the French brand Chamay. They've had these cool divers watches, like, only for women. And I sometimes see them and be like, can they make a men's version? Swarovski, for example. They had a few of them. But, like, that was a brand that I wanted to have more men's watches. Um even like Chopard. Chopard makes a lot of women's watches. I like. I wish they made men's versions of it that I like. So I, you know, I, it can actually go both what ways. What is a men's version of a women's watch you like? Like, what is that? Well, sometimes the size. I just like it to be bigger, just because I prefer a larger size myself. Um, sometimes a little bit more angularity. I like masculine-looking stuff. So sometimes I like the design, but they'll use certain colors or textures to soften things up and like. As a guy, I want like strong, like brawny looking stuff. So I like sometimes like a lot of feminine um, profiles and overall shapes, but sometimes like the detailing, stuff like that, if it goes too much in that direction, I just look at it and I don't see a men's watch. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think, I, I guess my message to answer your original question about like, what is my hope for the Swiss watch industry? It's like, A, retire the word ladies, because honestly, that's just so pejorative and like 1950s and just archaic. Like, I I don't need to, a ladies model. What is a ladies model? It's like a 35, 30, actually, I take it back. It's like a 32 millimeter quartz watch with a mother of pearl dial and some diamonds. Um, that's what a ladies watch is. And honestly, nobody I know is looking for that watch. No woman I know wants that watch. Um, I say, so retire that word. If you want to market your watches, and help retailers understand kind of where to place them and how to group them and merchandise them, market them as sort of maybe more masculine styles or more feminine styles. But don't tell women, these are women's watches. These are the watches that are made for you. And don't tell men these. I mean, there's so much genderlessness in this, in this world. And that idea of a unisex approach is just, I, I definitely makes more business sense to me. And it's just less offensive. Like, don't, don't tell me what I, what you think I want. I'll tell you. So what here's, I mean. here's a, here's a question. And, and thank you for that perspective. 
wasn't entirely aware of that, but that's legitimate. But there's another another side to this, and that is essentially this. You are going into the store as a man. You specifically want to buy a woman a watch as a gift. You might not know a lot about watches enough to know which belongs on which wrists. When there's a section which says women's watches, you're like, okay, I'll choose one of those. So I think a lot of it was designed for a male buying something for a female and structuring it, or at least categorizing that way, made it clear which is for who. So now in the future, how do you at least help that buyer know how to get, do they just need to know more about watches? Is it more about a conversation? Because oftentimes signaling, which is you know supposed to look good on uh, a female wrist, helps when a, when a man is making that purchase decision. I mean, I think that's like a vestige of, you know, a time when women didn't have money of their own and didn't go out and buy things for themselves. And that just seems like ancient history to me. I mean, so I think, you know, if there are men this day and age who can't look at a watch and identify the fact that it's like a little bit smaller for, you know, might be appropriate for a slightly smaller wrist, might have some feminine details like that mother pearl dial or some gemstones around it. And if they still can't identify that as being appropriate for their, uh, the, the woman in their life, then they should just talk to the salesperson or get some guidance through the chat bot on their, on their screen. And that's definitely available to them. So I don't think these sort of categories of men's and women's are really necessary. I mean, honestly, who doesn't recognize a, a watch that's kind of feminine and say, oh, well, that's more feminine than this other hulking style over here that's clearly, you know, made for a big wrist and somebody who's out to have some sort of adventure, you know? I mean, that just seems like weird to me that somebody at this day and age wouldn't recognize what's more feminine and what's more masculine. I don't know. I mean, we grew up in a world where there were these more rigid lines between masculinity and femininity, and now we're entering a world where that conversation is taking a different direction. If you completely grew up in a place where there weren't as many lines, I don't know what decisions you could make or not. I really have no idea. I know that you're right. Someone from with our experience could, without signs, um, tell what it is. But I think that people just getting into watches might need more signaling or education of what is appropriate on this anatomy versus what's appropriate on, on that anatomy. I really don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think for, I mean, I can't, I'm, I don't know anybody who wouldn't sort of recognize maybe you, you have like a size, you know, spectrum and maybe you have like an embellishment kind of spectrum. So, you know, a lot of men don't like a lot of embellishment and a lot of women do. They like that sort of glam factor and or you know but honestly a lot of men like that too i i really i love me some other pearl and diamonds yes, i do I, why I do. not right i, I mean do. like or those like you know i it really hit home actually and i don't know if you were on this call but oris earlier in the spring had like a press zoom about their new collection and they had um those color those colored dial was it cotton candy they called yes, it or something exactly and there was like yeah. a green dial and I remember Adam Craniotis, you know, well-known watch journalist. We, watch we know journalist. Adam. We we know he's Adam. been on the show. He's been on the show. Exactly. No, beloved. I mean, genuinely beloved. Like, I remember him distinctly commenting on that. And another watch writer, this guy, Justin, commenting on that saying they really, like, loved that mint green dial. And I just thought, all right, well, here's a, here's a clear moment where, like, that watch is in some other universe or 10 years ago would have clearly been a woman's piece. But why? Why not let the men who want to wear a mint green dial that matches their summer look? You know what? I have to say, liberation of colors has been fantastic. That 
that I as a straight man can wear a rainbow again makes me so happy. I don't know how else to say it. Yes. I mean, exactly. So like, let's just celebrate that and not tell men what, what's appropriate for them to wear and women what's, you know, vice versa for women. So that's probably one key message for the Swiss. Okay. Like break, just break your gender boundaries, like get rid of them, forget them. They're, they're old, they're, they're fussy, they're, and they speak of a much different era. Break down those gender walls. Thank you. (laughs) What else? What else? Um, you know, I've been struggling with these ideas of like digital selling. And I don't know if you've really spent a lot of time thinking about like digital luxuries and digital like luxury. You, you, you know, I have, you know, I have. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I, I really don't know what to think of them. I think sometimes I think, God, don't be a Luddite. Just like go with the flow. And if this is what this next generation of buyers is interested in is owning NFT watches and like, you know, trading, trading watches in their metaverse somewhere in Roblox. It's no less weird than their Steve McQueen fetish. I guess, right? Like, it feels really <laughs> weird to me. Like, I've grown up with the idea of jewelry as, like, a tangible a tangible heirloom that you give, you know, as a tangible object to people. So the idea of only owning it as a digital item is is very unsettling to me. And so I've been exploring this idea, and I'm wondering, you know, do I need to open my my mind to, to this? Um I, I still don't know where to land on it, but I do find those brands that are open to experimenting with it, like J- Jacob and Company, like um, even Breitling, which had that partnership or has that partnership with Dressed, which is like a digital fashion community. Um, I I've, talked a, I've talked a lot about this world myself. I have too much understanding of it. Like once you really boil it down to the details, you're like, what value is being added here? And you're like, wait, not that much. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Like I, it also seems to me when I, when I look at it, kind of step back, I think, yeah, this is just like one of those silly things we'll look back on and say, oh yeah, 2021. It was all about that. that Nonsense, you know? So I do acknowledge that a lot of it is just like you know, just a, what is the word? Why am I? Gimmick. It's a gimmick. A gimmick. Thank you. It's 1030. I've had a, a, a <laughs> my, my brain is, is getting fuzzy, fuzzier. Don't worry. I, I'm here. I'm here as backup. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I do think a lot of that will just be in hindsight, just like nonsense gimmicks, silliness that people, but I applaud the experimentation. I mean, without like trying these things, even if they don't work or even if they fail spectacularly, I mean, how do we know? You know, I mean, I, I I, kind of have always, I find the Swiss can be just super boring because they don't do anything that interesting. They don't try anything that interesting. So after a while, I mean, I have to applaud IWC because I think that they do a lot of interesting things um, very elegantly. So they do things that maybe won't work, but they do them in a way that to me is is thoughtful and also brave. And And specifically, I'm thinking of, this um, IWC CEO, Christoph Granger Hare, who's like a very, I find, like engaging, big thinker out there. Also been on the show. Also been on the show. Wonderful. Okay. So he, I interview him a lot and I kind of feel bad sometimes because I feel like I constantly go back to him, but he's just always trying new things. And one of them recently was that he uh, worked with a company based here in LA called Portal, P-O-R-T-L, that makes hologram machines essentially, or that enables you to become a hologram and appear 
or beam to a different city around the world where one of its epic machines is based, which is what he did. You've all seen Star Wars, right? Yes. And it, listen, I went down to the portal's headquarters here in Echo Park. I interviewed the CEO, David Nussbaum, as a hologram. And then at the end, he turned me into a hologram. And I was like, wow, like you look fucking like a 3D person standing in front of me talking in full, like, 3D volume, real time. I mean, it was sort of mind boggling, you know? And so IWC did that because their CEO didn't, couldn't go to Shanghai for Watches and Wonders earlier this spring. But isn't that also a gimmick? I'm saying it's cool, but isn't it also a gimmick? I mean, I don't think we know it's a gimmick until years from now. It may be, maybe we look back and say that was a gimmick. Or digitally appearing at a meeting is something we haven't wrapped our minds around yet. No, it may just be, (laughs) listen, it was a pretty cool experience to watch somebody as a hologram appear, have this conversation and feel like they were there in like, you know, real time life size, um, like as a presence. I, who knows? I mean, I think years from now, we'll look back and say either that was the beginning of holograms and that was something we, we thought was gimmicky, but it actually ended up becoming a real thing. Or we'll look back and say, yeah, it just it was like kind of a cool novelty, and that was that. Well, I'd like to see um, more people in general as holograms. I think that'd be cool. <laughs> I mean, getting a little 3D from the Zoom thing is is going to be great. So you know, just make it a little bit more real. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. I guess actually, we've we we saw each other during the pandemic, but um, events are happening again, so we're going to be able to sit in the corner and gossip like we used to. And I can't wait, like in the flesh, with a drink right? in our hands that we can. Yes, I mean, I I am one hundred percent about IRL interactions. So I am exactly one hundred percent looking forward to that. Can't wait to see you. I don't know when that will be, but hopefully to be at like some show. It'll, it'll be it, it, it'll be soon. Yeah, worry, worry not, everyone. If you want to see more of Victoria's work, you can go to her website victoriagamelski.com. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Superlative. Oh my God, Ariel, thank you so much. It was so lovely to chat with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?